Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. Today I have Peter Jonjo of Twiga. Uh, coming to us from LA, but the company's based in uh, Kenya, correct? Yes, based out in Kenya. Really interesting. So what does Twiga do? I think it's always good to start with a problem that we're trying to solve. Africa spends about half of its disposable income on food, and that's what the US uh, consumers were spending about 150 years ago. So that's a significant amount of money to be spending on food. And a lot of this is driven by the fragmentation of uh, the retail. Uh, retail, for example, here in the US is fairly consolidated. You have a, bu- a, f- a few big retail players. In Africa, is very, very fragmented. Just to give you an idea, Nairobi has about 5 million consumers buying their produce from 180,000 retailers. Mm. So when you have that level of fragmentation, then you have a huge issue around uh, structured access to the domestic market. So what Twiga does, is that it uses a tech platform to aggregate the demand for these informal retailers and organizing more efficient uh, supply chains uh, through our logistics and warehousing platform to then allow farmers and the rest to uh, sell produce into that market. Yeah, I was looking at the website, very nice, simple, clear website explaining this. So I guess you're, do you sign on the farmers first and then you partner with retailers or is it the opposite way? You have to start with uh, retailers and then uh, get on to the farmers. It's, it's a multi-sided platform. It's a B2B marketplace that we're building. So it's a, it's a bit of both. So you have to then uh, sign on the customers or uh, the retailers, and then you have to sign on the farmers and uh, balance both as you move along, just to ensure that you're able to serve both sides. Yeah, no, it's, I'm sure it's challenging. What, what are the real inefficiencies if you can boil it down into a couple key <laughs> nuggets that you're eliminating or, or solving. First thing is that because of this uh, informality, the, the farming ecosystem is uh, not well capitalized. So there's a uh, very low efficiency coming through from, uh, from that side. So uh, the yields are very, very low compared to anywhere else globally. Uh, you have about 30 to 40% of uh, fresh produce being lost before it makes its way to retail. So mm. there are very, very high levels of post-harvest loss. And then also this level of fragmentation creates a lot of mediation uh, with uh, various parties along the, along the chain. And this type of mediation then makes uh, cost of food very, very high uh, across the continent. So I would say that it's a structural issue that is created by the fragmentation of the retail. Yeah, I... I don't know if this is even remotely correct, but when I was looking at your website, I was kind of thinking of, I was labeling you guys as like a super efficient wholesaler. Is that even kind of right or not? Well, a wholesaler has a passive element to it. So we do a lot of warehousing and logistics. So the way to think of it is that we're a B2B yeah. uh, with, uh, with warehousing and logistics um, integrated into it. So the way to think of it is our success would be if the informal retailer in Africa doesn't have to wake up at 4 a.m. to go and source their produce and they can log on to their phone on our app and order everything that they need and have it delivered in 18 hours. 
uh, that for us is is what success looks like. And I assume food is already moving across this network. Can you talk about any uh, statistics or metrics or other you know, data points? The way to uh, look at it is uh, across the African continent, um, 80 to 90% of food is retailed through this uh, informal vendor. So you're talking about millions and millions of small retailers. And, um, and across, uh, and across uh, value chains, for example, fresh, you're talking about uh, 30 to 40%. And, uh, post-harvest loss, yep. just due to poor handling of uh, produce. So there's a lot of uh, what I'd call um, uh, inefficiencies that are baked into the food value chains. And that's what uh, companies like ourselves are doing by coming into this space and uh, removing also the uncertainty for the producers like farmers, which means that they can then better invest in uh, more efficient, uh, more efficient uh, ways to farm. So so I would say that uh, there's a lot of inefficiency that's inherent in the food value chain uh, across the continent. Yeah, I, I hear all that. I think you've made that point pretty pretty well stated. Um, but is your system up and running? Is there actual transactions happening? Or is this something you're building out? And, and where does it stand today, I guess, is a question. So today, uh, we serve about uh, 5,000 retailers in uh, Nairobi every day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have a very high reorder rate with our customers because uh, predominantly uh, we're serving a lot of fresh. So our customer is ordering from us like every two days. And uh, right now we're moving close to 300 tons of produce per day through our, through our, through our whole warehousing and logistics uh, infrastructure, uh, which essentially is still a small part of the market. Yeah, wow. I can imagine with that many uh, intermediaries you're going to get some resistance to try and come into market. I'm just thinking aloud here, but has that been a challenge? You're, you're kind of displacing or uh, removing a lot of potential jobs, perhaps? Is that a, a friction point for you guys? Well, I would say that uh, uh, intermediaries exist where they're bottlenecks. So we're still a very small uh, fraction of uh, the market. So, But what you find is that as we're going and uh, creating more efficient uh, farmers, our farmers are actually recruiting more people. So that's creating jobs on that side of, uh, of the equation. When you look at the retailers, they're reducing the rate of post-harvest losses. So they're actually able to uh, generate more profitability out of their outlets. So which essentially is uh, allowing them also to, um, uh, to, scale the, to scale the operations. The way I would look at it is, it's, um, over time, it would create like a shift in where the jobs are. Sure. But I don't think it's about uh, elimination of jobs. Yeah, it makes sense. What were you doing before this and how did you come up with this idea? So um, I spent uh, 21 years working for the Coca-Cola company across uh, various uh, roles on the, on the continent. My last role, I was president for Western Central Africa based out in Nigeria, in, uh, in Lagos. And uh, when uh, my co-founder and I came up with this uh, idea five, uh, five years ago, actually closer to six years ago, we're more or less thinking about, you know, what would it take for us to export bananas out of Kenya? Because we're reading that this is a huge commodity and there's such a huge uh, global demand for it. And, uh, you know, we then realized that we can't even ship one crate of banana out of Kenya because the production infrastructure was not very competitive and the uh, cost of production was very high. And we started pivoting and that's how we then realized that, you know, there's a huge inefficient local market. So, um, so I would say that uh, it, was, uh, it was something that we, we more or less uh, uh, innovated backwards uh, when we realized our export business wasn't going to work. And, um, 
And uh, one thing led to another, and we just kept on uncovering value chain after value chain, which was so inefficient. And at first, we just didn't understand why we were able to sell at the margin. And uh, the more we started understanding the challenges in the market, then the clearer it became that there's actually a huge issue around food in Africa. Yeah, interesting. Um, very cool. And is this, you know, ultimately, is your solution a solution for Kenya, a solution for Africa, or a, or a solution that could be a global uh, platform? I would say that uh, it's a solution where you have uh, a lot of this uh, fragmentation of retail. We've seen companies very similar to us uh, do very well in markets like India, uh, which essentially faces the same dynamics as you have, for example, in Africa. You have a huge population, a lot of informality in retail, significant uh, fragmentation. And those same metrics uh, you'll find in similar markets, for example, in some countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, but I think for us, Africa is just such a huge, uh, big opportunity uh, with close to a billion people. So there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, what I'd call opportunity still that is untapped on the continent. Yeah, very interesting. All right, one more question about the business because it's pretty interesting. Is your play to, you know, can I tackle the entire logistics supply chain, including trucking, storage, refrigeration? Warehousing, or is it more in the market making between retailers and um, farmers? Right now, actually, we own the whole ecosystem, all the way from farm uh, to retail. But of course, as we gain scale, uh, the whole idea is how do you then create a marketplace for the various uh, stages in the value chain? For example, can logistics companies provide the tracking for you? If uh, they're getting uh, a data on uh, which customers to fulfill from you or from a warehousing standpoint, you don't need to build your own warehouse. You can actually get uh, maybe a, um, a service of somebody who's already done that and, and figure out how you what, what infrastructure you need to put in place. So the key thing is that I think we started on one end of a continuum where we own all the assets across a value chain and we'll get to a halfway house where some we own, some we may not own. Yeah, totally makes sense. All right, let's talk about fundraising. How much have you guys raised and over how many rounds? So we just closed our Series uh, B, uh, which was uh, uh, 20, uh, uh, $23.75 million, which was led by Goldman Sachs, and, uh, and about $6 million in debt. Uh, so far, we've raised about $45.3 million in equity and about $11 million in debt. So that's a total of 56, slightly above $56 million uh, for the five years that uh, we've, been, uh, we've been around. So, uh, but uh, very balanced from family offices uh, to VC funds uh, and to a couple of angels. Let's talk about the early days when you're starting to fundraise for this. It seems like this would be really challenging to raise money for. I, I mean, it's a huge problem, which is good, right? Investors love that. But like, I wouldn't even know where to start looking for investors for something like this. Where did you go for the, that first angel round, seed round, whatever it was? So it was interesting. Uh, first thing is that to finance the business in the early days, um, so my wife and I, we actually sold our house and okay. uh, invested in the business. So it was, it was tough to even get anybody to listen to you in the early days. So, um, and uh, and uh, my co-founder uh, stumbled on, um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an accelerator, on, a, on an entrepreneurship, uh, actually a startup accelerator 
based out in DC and they were running this global competition. So we just entered it and those, the prize money was $250,000 and we're like, gosh, we, we, we might do with the cash. So we, uh, so we registered for the, for the, for the competition and, um, and then we ended up winning uh, globally out of 1,200 companies, which oh, I wow. think for us was just phenomenal. So, uh, so we thought that, you know, at the end of it, you just get a check. But what we did is that we got a pre-money valuation and uh, the whole idea was, yes, we're going to get the 250000 if we raise a million dollars. And I'd never heard of pre-money valuation before. I'd never heard of VC before. And uh, we educated basically every, we learned everything through YouTube. <laughs> mm, interesting. What was that competition called? It was uh, the 1776 uh, 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 Global Startup Competition. It was by a fund called 1776 based out in Washington, D.C. And so you win this competition, number one out of a thousand, which is phenomenal uh, odds, but you did it. Congrats. And then how did you raise the, the, the rest of that million, I guess, which you had to do to get the 250? Is that correct? Yes. So what, uh, what this fund did was to then say, look, you know, use our name and go out there and market, uh, market yourselves. So just mention that, you know, you already have 25% commitment from yep. ourselves. So just go ahead and raise the money. And that's exactly what we did. So, um, so we, uh, so we hit, uh, we, so we essentially, first of all, first had to, first of all, just understand, uh, how the whole uh, fundraising process works. Uh, but then at the end, uh, we also got a consultant, um, uh, I, I have a fund by the name of uh, IDEV. Uh, there's a good friend of mine there, Jason. He's now late. Was so instrumental in helping us understand how to position ourselves, how to do the modeling. Um, and that's what uh, we then leveraged to actually go out there and start fundraising. And of course, uh, lots of uh, videos on Y Combinator, just in terms of how to pitch and how not to pitch. <laughs> so that really helped in the early days. I, yeah, of course, I'm going to plug my own podcast here, but you should have, I don't think we were around back then, but it, you know, that's the whole point of this podcast series. How I raised it is explaining to people how, how, what it takes to raise money. So hopefully we can help the next Twiga fruit foods down the line. <laughs> Very good. Um, so how did you identify investors that would be even willing to talk to you about this? Because I think a lot of I think there's some, maybe this is changing, but there's some uncertainty or fear about, you know, investing in Africa for many, many VCs and angels. Did you find that? So actually what, uh, what really helped was uh, we had, uh, we really had uh, a lot of family offices that had funds that had an impact angle that were looking at uh, investing on the continent. And that was, uh, uh, that was uh, uh, an amazing uh, uh, source of partners who uh, backed us in the early days because what you realize is that you know to attract commercial VC in Africa you know you need to be of a certain size and raising a certain amount so but what we found is that you know there was a lot of impact investors in the early days uh, who were who were who were ready to um, to fund us or back us because of uh, the problem that we were trying to solve so again it was just understanding the ecosystem and, and the type of money that was available then and uh, and I also I also tell people that you know impact funding doesn't impact investing doesn't mean that uh, you're for charity. I mean it's just commercial investing uh, driven with a cause, yeah, cause attached to it. So 
So there was a lot of that in the early days and that really helped. And a lot of how we managed to get around was a lot of networking, a lot of referrals. Um, that's how we were able to uh, identify all the, all the partners in the market. Well, let's just drill down even a little further on that. I mean, family offices with an impact angle, those, I've never seen a website that lists all the family offices with an impact angle. Like, how did you even find them? Do you recall? It's a lot of uh, networking. Um, because what happens is that, you know, you go to the traditional source of uh, funds, you know, then you realize very quickly that, you know, no bank will, start, will touch a startup. So, so you put that behind you. Then, uh, of course, the next uh, sources uh, within my business circles, because then I was still working for Coca-Cola, you know. So mm -hmm. where, can, uh, where can we raise this? You know, do you know somebody who does this type of investment? And what happened is that as we started talking more to the commercial uh, funds, they started referring us to the more impact-oriented funds, saying that, look, I don't think my mandate can allow me to invest in a company like yours, but... I have somebody that uh, you can talk to and maybe they'd, they'd be more uh, accommodating or willing to listen to the type of idea that you have. And more of those types of conversations allowed us to then start building a network. And, um, and I'm really grateful to, uh, to my, my co-founder, Grant Brook, uh, because um, you know we were, we were more or less tag teaming uh, in the early days, but uh, he was doing a lot of the groundwork because I had a full-time job then. Um, so, and, and that's, that's basically how we, uh, we built our network of investors. And then from there, it was about continuous networking and referrals, mm -hmm. uh, continue getting a set of uh, investors who are willing to listen to your cause. Did you have any script for lack of a better term when, when you were talking to a regular venture fund to kind of probe them to get introductions or referrals over to more impact funds? Or did it just sort of happen organically? Did you have any system or method for that? Because I think, you know, understanding how the networking like actually happens is sometimes interesting for people. One of the things that we did was to understand how to create a pitch deck. So a lot of that we learned from uh, watching a lot of the Y Combinator uh, YouTube videos and a lot of the material that was out there uh, and any other material that was available. Uh, we, we actually uh, were reading a lot just in understanding how best to position our story. So that's what we first started with. How do you position your story? How do you make it compelling? And then once uh, we were able to get to a point where we felt that our story was compelling enough, uh, we then got the deck out there to as many people as possible. But at the same time, it wasn't just uh, sending the doc blindly. But uh, again, going back to the, uh, through the referral system, because when you're referred to somebody, chances of that person uh, is higher than you cold calling. So, so we really leveraged on uh, trying to get as many referrals as possible. And that's essentially what led to, uh, to a lot of uh, our earlier investors in the sure. How about Series A? Uh, so you, you raised that seed and how much was the seed? And then what, you know, how long until the Series A and did you have a, a market up by that point? So it was interesting. So we raised, uh, seed raise was $1.75 million. It was actually oversubscribed. Uh, then um, something very strange happened. You know, the bank where we had banked, uh, we had put all our equity, most of our equity money went under. Oh. <laughs> so immediately after our raise, we lost about half a million dollars of our capital. That's crazy. Was it a, a Kenyan bank or a U.S. bank or what? Kenyan bank. 
Huh. So, uh, yeah, so we had to then uh, do like a, a convertible note uh, that allowed us to raise uh, just uh, uh, enough capital to get to our Series A. And then, um, then uh, we did our Series A. Um, and uh, the Series A was, uh, it was just uh, about close to about $10 million. Uh, $10 million. Um, yeah. So, uh, so then, um, so after the Series A, then, um, and the Series A, essentially, in terms of investors, a lot of uh, the investors from the earlier rounds followed. But the good thing is that, you know, it then created interest in more players, and we had uh, new investors coming on board. Again, there was also quite a number of family offices that came in through the Series A, uh, and uh, there was still also quite a number of uh, new funds that were willing to more or less put in small tickets uh, to just test the waters. And again, that for us was um, a main source of investors in the Series A. So uh, yeah, so that was uh, so that was our Series A, and uh, and then. Uh, we just close our series B and in between we had a, we had another convertible between the A and the B. Did you, are you incorporated in the U S or Kenya and did you raise money from any African VCs? What's the, the state of the union in terms of African uh, venture market? So uh, we actually incorporated in Mauritius. Um, and the good thing about Mauritius is that uh, they have a lot of double tax agreements with a lot of the countries on the continent. So actually it's a very good jurisdiction if you're operating uh, predominantly in the African market. Um, and uh, we had several conversations with, um, with, uh, with uh, African, uh, African VCs in the earlier days. Actually it's not VCs, it's PEs. What happens is that uh, in the African market, you don't have a lot of funds uh, or let's say indigenous funds that are in this venture capital space. So most of them are actually in the PE space. So again, they're investing in mature businesses, already profitable, uh, potentially with a path to exit. So, but in this VC space, is essentially it's a green space. Oh, it's, a, it's what I'd call a green, like an open space. So a lot of uh, the funding uh, would predominantly be funds that are based either in Europe or in the US or in Asia. Yeah. So talk about this, maybe put yourself in the shoes of your younger self, or if you were advising, you know, young, uh, hungry, ambitious African founders, startups who want to go raise money, you won the lottery by winning that competition, but what advice would you give them to, to do what you've done and raise money from, you know, U.S. angels and VCs? One of the things that, uh, that uh, worked out well for, for us in the, in the earlier days is that I was a big believer in investing in talent early. Um, and, uh, and that made a huge, huge difference to where the company is today, vis-a-vis uh, -vis a lot of other companies that started around the same time. Um, so we, uh, we're very keen in terms of how we hired, the kind of capability that we brought on board, and we ensured that we complemented the weaknesses that we had internally. So that for us uh, was a huge, uh, huge, uh, huge driver uh, in terms of uh, success in the fundraising. And the second thing is around governance. Um, what you find is that um, across Africa, there's, uh, of course, the narrative around the level of governance that you find generally on the African continent. There's a lot of corruption. Uh, there's a lack of due process in uh, many, many quarters. 
But the key thing is that we had to build a narrative that was very, very different from that. So when people looked into the business, they saw a well-run business. They saw a business that actually uh, valued integrity. They saw a business that had values. Um, they saw a business that did not condone corruption. So we had to build that and really set ourselves apart from uh, what you would consider to be the general narrative uh, that is associated with this part of the world. Yeah, makes sense. Very good. And talk about raising money from Goldman Sachs. So is that a growth fund or is that off their balance sheet? I'm not familiar with Goldman Sachs venture uh, arm. What is it? No, this is uh, through the, uh, uh, through, this is actually their own uh, fund. Uh, so this is actually lending from their own balance sheet. So Great. they call it the strategic situations uh, fund. So Interesting. So, and how'd you get in and how'd you get in with them? And what's it like pitching to Goldman Sachs? Any tips for people who might <laughs> have that luxury in the future? So, so I would say that uh, it was, uh, it was fa fairly, fairly interesting. So when we started out, uh, so when I started out, actually, I learned about um, uh, Goldman and their activities on the continent uh, from, uh, from a friend. Um, and uh, so I approached their office in uh, Johannesburg. I shared, uh, I shared uh, uh, my thoughts in terms of uh, where we needed funding and, and how we wanted to go about it and our growth ambitions. And then that's how I kind of got to uh, engage with uh, their special situations group uh, based out in, uh, in London. And, uh, and, and that's when uh, we more or less uh, just started having the conversation and all. So one of the things that I found amazing with Goldman is that uh, uh, they 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 uh, they have a, a keen eye for opportunity. So and for what? Say again, please. Opportunity for the opportunity. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're also very decisive, uh, which I think for me was also something that was uh, really exciting. Once they made the decision to uh, uh, to invest in the company, they moved uh, fairly quickly, and I think all that for me was uh, was pretty impressive. So, but I would say that uh, the reason why, for example, the Goldman uh, felt comfortable dealing with us is because also the type of capability that we had built internally, the level of governance that we had. So, um, so those things uh, really helped. But I, I must say that, you know, pitching to Goldman um, is, um, these are very commercially survey people. So, uh, so you need to carry a sharp pencil with you. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah is, so. is the process similar to pitching to other venture firms or is it more you know numbers driven i mean i don't know any contrast versus pitching other vc firms i would say that uh, the a lot of uh, there's a, there's a bit of uh, quite a bit of uh, due diligence that's front loaded and uh, and the and the depth of due diligence was just not on the governance or on the finance side of it it was very broad from how you build your tech uh, to uh, the people side of things, to the regulatory environment. So it was very, very broad. So it was uh, a level of due diligence that we had not gone through before, which I think for us was a significant learning uh, as, a, as a company. So, but it was a very, very interesting process. But what I liked about Goldman is that they were very, very decisive. Um, they made the calls and they, they, they moved very quickly. Yeah. Any tips for other entrepreneurs to prepare for diligence? that's something not a lot of people are familiar with maybe yeah so i think the key thing is that uh 
uh, with uh, with diligence, what we learned is um, have like a, what I'd call a live uh, a live data room, a data room where as you go and uh, keep on learning from different experience with different investors, build on that knowledge and uh, build on that repository and keep that data current. Because what happens is that uh, when you have a well structured data room that um, that investors uh, can find easy to navigate. Uh, it actually uh, really reduces uh, what I'd call the pain of uh, due diligence. Due diligence can either be a very painful process or can be a smooth process. But in terms of, uh, as an entrepreneur, at times you don't know what you don't know. So when you start, there's of course, you're starting from a clean sheet of paper, but ensure that you build on your knowledge as you move along uh, and, and, you keep your, and you keep your repository uh, live. Um, and of course, um, there's a professional help that, uh, that you get, uh, but uh, that would also be uh, uh, complemented well if uh, you've uh, been chronicling uh, your information in a, in, a, in a very structured way over time. Do you recommend any particular data room software vendor? No, actually, uh, we, uh, we use Dropbox. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just folders. Got it, so, okay. Uh, we kept it. We kept it a bit simple. So we just put everything on Dropbox, but we're very structured in terms of if it has to do with financial, if it had to do with tax. So you kind of just file the documentation in a way that's very, very easy to follow. But again, of course, all of this uh, we built a lot of internal capability that really helped in uh, preparing for the DD process. Very good. All right, Peter. Well, I won't keep you. You've got a continent of Africa to to feed. Uh, I'll let you get back to that. But any um, last words of advice, tips, things you would have, you would do differently if you could go back in time, anything we haven't covered? No, I would say that, uh, the journey of entrepreneurship is, uh, is a very rewarding one, uh, albeit a bit challenging. And, uh, one of the things I would say is that, uh, when I look back, I wish I made the decision to, uh, move full time into, uh, into the company I founded, uh, much earlier than I did. Uh, because I realize that, you know, there's never a right time and there'll always be some uncertainty. And I think that's why people value the businesses that entrepreneurs create, because you find a way to deal with their uncertainty and uh, you give a predictable structure to, uh, to anyone else who's coming along down the road. So, uh, so I think that that for me is one thing I wish I, I did earlier. But um, the key thing is that uh, it's I call it a permanent steeplechase. I don't know whether you know in athletics, the steeplechase competition where you're jumping a hurdle, there's water one time, you're jumping a hurdle, there's no water, then it's clear. And it just feels like at times it's a permanent steeplechase. You're always running around and, and jumping through hurdles. But the thing is that when you look back and see what it is that you've achieved, you feel so proud, proud of that. But it doesn't feel like it when you're in the process. So it's always a very uh, reflective type of... Um, uh, what I'd say insight. Yeah. Were you able to buy your house back that you sold to fund the, the angel round? Well, my wife has a, has a, has a holiday home now. So, uh, so again, uh, I'll, I'll work my way towards, uh, building, uh, building another house. So, uh, but the thing is it, it's, uh, it's just not been a priority for us. Sure. Uh, we just also realize that, you know, some of the things that you consider to be very, very important, uh, at times, um, um, it's, it's all contextual. So, but for us, uh, we were grateful that we had the house that we could sell and, uh, and be able to fund a business. So that was, that was very useful of that house. 
it's what it takes. Uh, you know, people, uh, I had another uh, woman on the show here that sold her like 1967 Mustang convertible that was like cherry to, to fund her startup. I mean, you know, so it's, I, I like hearing these stories because it's what it takes. I think people don't realize. <laughs> so. You read this story later, but uh, as I mentioned, you know, it's a steeplechase. There's all these hurdles that you have to go through. But the key thing is that uh, your level of determination and grit is what gets you there. Sure. All right, Peter. Very good. If people want to learn more, it's twigafoods.com. That's T-W-I-G-A foods.com. Correct? Do I have that right? Yeah. Or twiga.ke. Twiga.ke. Okay. Great. Awesome. Well, good luck with the continued success and we'll catch you after your Series C. How about that? Thank you so much, Nathan. And looking forward to that. And hopefully I can come and share a lot more. (laughs) That'd be great. That'd be great. All right. Thank you, sir.